Today's Animal Spirits Talk Your Book is brought to you by J.P. Morgan and the new J-Bond ETF. Ticker J-B-N-D. Go to am.jpmorgan.com to learn more or search J.P. Morgan Asset Management to find this fund. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. I think this is our first ever Talk Your Book Live. Is that fair? First one in a long time. Wait, what what are you talking about, Willis? Okay. First Talk Your Book Live? I don't think so. Okay. This is our first Talk Your Book Live ever at the New York Stock Exchange. That's a fact. Okay. And I've never been to the New York Stock Exchange. So this is pretty cool. Did it meet your expectations? Exceeded my expectations. So not. So we were on the floor. We were also in a couple of boardrooms. And what did we see? We saw Thomas Edison wrote a letter to the Stock Exchange talking about being listed. Alexander Hamilton pictures. We saw a some, lot of history. We saw some old, what are those things called? Were these like, are they called stock tickers? What were these things called? Yeah. From 1915? Ticker, ticker um, tapes, right? Unbelievable. It was pretty cool. So really, we were really there. Cool. JP Morgan was listing their new J Bond ETF on the exchange, and we were there for the ringing of the bell. It was neat. It was, it was a new experience for me. It was very interesting. And afterwards, we sat down with two people who work for the fixed income side of JP Morgan's team on their portfolio management side. I don't, I'm not going to, I don't want to shortchange anybody else that we've spoken about fixed income because we've had a lot of great guests. So I'm not going to say that this was my favorite. I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say that this was a very good conversation. It was. So we get into not only the fun, but fixed income markets and spreads and a lot of stuff we've been talking about on the show. So we talked- we, we got technical and we went broad and we went deep. It's true. We got the CS, CFA stuff and regular people stuff, mm. right? Because you literally did ask me like two months ago, like, explain convexity to me. All right, I forgot. No, you knew what it was, <laughs> but you just wanted an explanation and we got an explanation. So we talked to Kayher, who is the CIO for Global Fixed Income at JP Morgan. and then. Rick Figley, who is the head of their core strategy with Global Fixed Income and helps manage this fund. Uh, and we went to a bunch of different places. It was live in person. I had a Diet Coke. No Coke Zero. Can't win at all. All right. So here's our conversation with Kay and Rick. We are joined today by two members of the JP Morgan Fixed Income team. Kay Her is the managing director, US CIO for Global Fixed Income, Currency and Commodities team. Uh, Rick Figley is the Managing Director, Head of Core Strategy within Global Fixed Income, Currency, and Commodities Group. We are at the New York Stock Exchange today. It's My a big fir- day. It is a big day. My first, first time. time. Yep, I got to see the bell. That My was first time seeing the opening bell. Yeah, so we're here for the launch of the new ETF, J-Bond. And so we want to talk a little bit about the, the bond market to start, which I've been making the case to Michael that it's been more interesting the last two to three years than the equity market. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I'm not saying that just because I'm in the bond market. But I think what's happened is, I mean, if you look at 2022, we had a horrendous repricing in the bond market. And people started to question the role that bonds play in portfolios. But actually, bonds are diversifiers and they provide yield. The repricing that we had in 2022, bonds are back to providing those two key roles in portfolios. So absolutely, core fixed income has an important place in portfolios. And based on our conversations with advisors and clients and even institutions, people are pretty dramatically under-allocated to fixed income. I wonder if 2022 was the way to do it. And what I mean is, over the years, in 2013 and 14 and all the way through, 
I had been telling our clients, listen, if we ever want to get some income from our fixed income, we're going to have to take a couple of steps back to take more steps forward. And boy, did we rip the bandit off. It all happened very quickly. I was hoping to take two steps back to take three steps forward, not 19 steps back, which we did. 2022 was an unusual year, just to remind the audience not that that they need it, but bonds. So when people buy stocks, we all understand the risks involved, right? We know we've seen the charts. We've seen the drawdowns. We understand risk is tied to reward. We understand that's like the contract that we signed with with the the market gods. Bonds, (laughs) on the other hand, they were supposed to be the, the security blanket. They were supposed to protect us when stocks fell. And not only did they not protect us, they were, you could make the argument, they were at the source. They're why stocks fell because of the repricing of, of interest rates. How, how did you all deal with, with, uh, with client conversations in 2022? What was that like at JP Morgan? It was tough. I mean, if you look back at uh, 2022, the aggregate index was down roughly 15%. And while our alpha across U.S. fixed income was strong, when you're down 13 and change versus 15 and change, nobody likes you. They throw things at you. So it was really difficult. I think it's important, and, and I'm not running away from 2022 or hiding from 2022. That was a very painful repricing. And the alpha that we generated isn't enough to compensate the beta that really hurt clients' portfolios. How much do you put into the capital appreciation part? Because obviously, everyone in the markets now just pays attention to the Fed. And a lot of people think the Fed is is the whole game in town and they control everything. And obviously, they do control a lot to a certain extent. But do you put a lot of faith in your process of trying to understand what the Fed's going to do? Well, if the Fed cuts rates, that depends on what duration we're in. And how much do you look at what the Fed is going to possibly do versus just the risk reward based on the securities and the different structures you invest in? I think the answer is both are important, and let me dig into that a little bit and talk about why and when. So as I said, the starting point for yields is important. But if you take a step back, you have to think about what the economy is doing, where the economy is, what the Fed might be doing as it relates to the economy. And those really drive how we think about a couple of important allocation decisions within bond portfolios. So you talked about stocks. You're looking at what's the valuation and what's the earnings trajectory. When we think about bond portfolios, there's the risk of duration, right? What's the maturity risk that you have? How far out? the curve are you going on it? And there's a whole other host of things that are complicated, but we're going to simplify this into duration risk and credit risk. So credit risk, high quality. So on the one hand, if you're thinking about buying treasury bonds, there's absolutely no credit risk associated with them. Those are full faith and credit of the United States government. Oh, yeah, you should see our comment section. (laughs) Fair (laughs) enough. I have read your comments and I've listened to these before and I think you guys do a terrific job on them. Um, But I, you know, I guess I should read more deeply in the comments. Anyway, um, there's no credit risk associated with that, but there's a lot of duration risk. If you're buying a 30-year treasury bond, that's going to be where things can be grossly mispriced or a lot of fluctuation based on it. So let's take a step back. And so, so those are the things that are really important to think about. So let's think about where's the economy? Where's the fret? Where's the Fed right now? What's the Fed doing? And then how does that set us up for capital appreciation or not? So to unpack all of that, first off, let's remember, what's the Fed's mandate? The Fed's mandate is stable pricing and full employment. Okay, so how are they doing on that? Right now, they're doing really well. Okay, so you've got unemployment under 4% for I think 25 consecutive quarters. That's terrific for US consumers, US for Americans, right? If you think it, look at inflation, I think as we all now know and appreciate, the Fed was behind the curve on inflation. They thought inflation was transitory in the post-pandemic period. There were a bunch of supply chain disruptions, and they were late to start hiking. 
Then they started hiking aggressively. And to your point, Michael, that's really what drove difficult performance in in bonds, because the Fed took the Fed funds rate all the way up to five and a quarter and five and a half, and that causes a repricing in everything, not just within the bond market, but also within equity markets. So that's what's happened. So here we are now. The Fed's got employment where they want it to be, right? Growth has actually been good. We're in what we would call a soft landing. We're in a Goldilocks type environment. So it's extremely difficult to achieve a soft landing. In fact, if you look at, you know, kind of the last seven cycles, really the Fed only achieved that one time previously. So there was a lot of expectation last year that the U.S. economy would slip into a recession. So far, that's not the case. Inflation, so let's talk about inflation in a second, but growth, GDP growth and jobs have still been you know, Goldilocks, not too strong, but not too so soft. So maybe you can settle the debate for us because so we've talked about a lot of people are saying, OK, great, we have this Goldilocks scenario. And I'm making the case that it feels more like the 90s than the 70s. Everyone's worried about the 70s. The economy right now feels more like the 90s. But so Michael says, why do we, does the Fed need to cut rates if they haven't really impacted the economy that much? My take is, well, if inflation is falling, that means real rates are higher and that could be more restrictive. So it does make sense for the Fed to cut. So you put me in a tough spot because agreeing, I have to agree with one of you and disagree with the other one. And I'm sitting closer to Michael, so I'm tempted to agree with him. But unfortunately, the merits of the argument that you have made are stronger. So the Fed's favorite measure for inflation is PCE, personal consumption expenditures. And if you look at it on a one-year basis, it's too long of a time series. So the best way to look at PCE is on a six-month annualized basis. And if you look at it on a six-month annualized basis, it's running at 1.9%, and the Fed's target is 2%. So inflation has actually moderated to down actually below what the Fed thinks the target is. And with real rates, with the Fed funds rate up at five and a quarter to five and a half, real rates are very restrictive. So as inflation has come down, real rates are restrictive, and that's going to be further tightening in the U.S. economy that could slip us into a recession. But counterpoint, financial conditions have eased so much to offset any of that monetary restriction. So that's a really interesting point. And if you look back, the if you go back to this fall, there were a couple of real debates going on in the market. So you could say to me, hey, Kay, you could have been sitting here in 2023 and it would have been the exact same argument. And there's an element of truth to that. But I would point out, actually, 12.31.22, 12.31.23, the yield on the aggregate index was basically the same. So what'd you do if you own bonds? You clipped your coupon, which was a good thing. You're getting five, six percent returns. Admittedly, far below the magnific- magnificent seven, magnificent seven. Yes, I can't talk. Far below that. But what bonds were supposed to do in your portfolio for you? So you make a good point about financial conditions, and it's like. You're right. Last year, when we think a couple of things happened, first off, everybody decided, oh my goodness, the budget deficits expanded, the Fed's going to, the Treasury's going to be issuing all this debt, and it's all going to be at the long end, and the market can't absorb this, and foreign buyers have gone. And that really helped to move. the the treasury above five percent. That was a worry for like a month. Wasn't that like, was it was in terror. That crazy, was right? that I was September October. Names, but wasn't somebody calling for thirteen percent on the ten year? I mean, there were some outrageous claims. Like the higher for longer. By the way, the higher for longer theme turned on a dime. It yeah. Was, higher for longer was consensus for like three four weeks, and yeah. then wow, did that and a painful unwind. three four, four weeks for yeah. us in our portfolios. Yeah, sure. I would tell you. Yeah. Um, you know, 
I don't traffic in the hedge fund community, but you're right. You get these ideas, people all pile into them. And I think that's why people, especially individual investors, have to think about in asset allocation, what they should own for the longer term and, you know, where bonds can make sense in that. It was a really interesting time where Ackman and a lot of other hedge fund managers were short the two-year, but uh, or whichever rates they were. but And then moved yeah. the opposite but, way. But then quickly. asset managers were super long. So it was this really weird push and pull between speculators and, and asset managers. I want to talk about regular people for a second. Uh, so in We are regular people, for, for <laughs> the not, record. Not hedge fund managers, uh, everyday investors. So in 2022, correct me if I'm wrong, there was a mass exodus out of bond funds, right? People ran away because it was just, the pain was, was too acute. And even though they should have been running towards higher yields, they were running away. In 2023, investors were piling into bonds. I think there was some crazy streak of consecutive weekly inflows, which made sense. It makes sense uh, mathematically, but everything we know about investor behavior, it was it didn't make sense because nobody people don't behave that way in the stock market. If the stock market is falling, you could better believe that there was there, there's outflows. Are, are investors getting smarter? Is it their advisors? Because the rational move is when you experience losses in the bond market, returns empirically become more attractive going forward. You we know that mathematically. Are investors getting smarter to that fact? So a couple of things. Yes, you're 100% correct. Second, I genuinely believe that Americans and their advisors are smart people and try to do what is logical and rational. If you look underneath the data at bond funds and what went in, it's actually a little bit more mixed. So the biggest inflow last year was actually into money market funds. So that's something like, there's something like $6 trillion sitting in money market funds. So neither stocks nor bonds, and actually... T-bills. There was, you know, you talked about memes and things that people like, right? Last year it was T-bill and shill. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of merit to buying money market funds, buying T-bills, because you could get rates north of 5% with no risk, right? So let's hold that for thought for a second. But if you look at the underlying markets, there were outflows in short duration bond funds, which is really interesting because the curve has actually been, the yields have been more attractive there. So you can make an argument that people should be in two and five year, and there were outflows in short duration bond funds. Core bond, however, actually had pretty substantial inflows. And then it was mixed. You saw outflows in emerging markets debt. You saw outflows in high yield debt. You saw inflows into investment grade. So I think it's a more nuanced story than just people were buying or not buying. I think- and just to add to this, just remember that back in the time when interest rates were low, 60-40 was dead. Mm -hmm. So nobody wanted to be in bonds. And you probably, you can make the case that that was, that was true, right? You know, now that rates are higher, you know, investors just recognize that bonds have value. There's yield there. There's income there. And so it's not necessarily about are investors smarter now than what they were. I think they just recognize the fact that the market has changed and investors are going to go. I, I wrote a eulogy for the 60-40 in 2019. I think we've written it. <laughs> a eulogy for the 60-40? 70-30 was 60-40, but 60-40 is back because now you actually can. 60-40 is back. Comfortably hold 40% of your assets. But a lot of people, you mentioned the money By the way, it, it was dead. When rates were zero. Oh, well, yeah. 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 And, but that's but where- But the 60 did a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Stocks were doing 14%. 100%. 100%. But do you think that that's a reasonable no. expectation no, year not. in, of year out? Not, yeah. But how, how do you think, let's say someone took the 40 and they said, you know what, uh, my bonds got crushed. I'm going to the money markets or T-bills and I'm clipping this and I'm not, I'm taking the volatility out of it. I think a lot of those people are wondering like, well, if the Fed cuts, I know my short-term rates are going to fall. So that's exactly the right question. And I think to your point, Michael, 
investors, we as humans worry about the last thing that happened to us and they don't worry about the next thing that's going to happen. So the next thing that's going to happen in our view is reinvestment risk. Okay. So we started to talk about the Fed and then we went off on a different tangent. But if you, if you go back to your question, people think I lost money in bonds. That's a bad thing. I can get five, five and a quarter, my money market fund and T-bills. But if we're right and the Fed starts easing because real rates are too high, then your money market fund yield is going to go down. Your T-bills, when you look at a 5%, 5 5.25% T-bill, that that is an annual rate for the 12 months. That assumes if it's a three-month T-bill, that assumes that you can roll that over. And we don't think that that's really what's going to happen. And so now is a good time to lock in yields for people. So if you're right, this is the big question on everybody's mind in 2024. Can't believe it's 2024. That sounds weird. 30 is, days into it. So $6 trillion in money market funds, I think another $2 trillion in CDs. What happens to that pile of money? The CFO of another large asset manager said he goes to bed salivating about <laughs> all of that money and, and the potential to, to rotate into fixed income flows. My suspicion or my, my working thesis, which obviously will either be right or wrong, is that I think there'll be a lot of inertia. Money was slow to move in. I think it's going to be slow to come out. And I also think it's more checking account than people selling bonds or stocks and going into there. But even still, even if it's only a fraction, there's still trillions of dollars up for grabs that will probably, a piece of it will come back into, into fixed income. So how are you all thinking about that, that piece of the puzzle? So a couple things first. So number one, when you look, I think the market's focused, people are focused on the wrong thing there right now. They're focused on, is the Fed going to ease in March? Is the Fed going to ease in June? And actually, it doesn't really matter. If we're sitting here a year from now, that's not going to be the debate. Oh my gosh, we got it right. The Fed eased in, in May and not, or June, not in March. What actually matters is from the time that the Fed stops hiking rates in the subsequent two-year period, bonds outperform, the aggregate index outperforms cash by something like 13%. And I think that's what's going to happen. I think people are waiting for the Fed to ease, and then they're going to say, oh my gosh, I can't, or they're going to see their T-bills mature and they can't roll them into another one, or their money market fund rate. And then they're going to start going, and that gets to where we think they're going to go. We think they're going to go into core bonds. Well, the problem is, as we know, the, the market doesn't wait. The exactly. market doesn't wait for the Fed to move. The 10-year is already down to 4-1 or wherever it is this morning. Yep. So, Rick, how should, like, how do you think about the tenure? Is the tenure already pricing in several cuts? I think the market overall is pricing in cuts for 2024. Uh, the real question is, you know, is the market pricing in too many cuts or not enough cuts? And I think that that's where it gets a little tricky when you're talking about duration. But just because of we didn't, I didn't just say anything about hikes, and that's the important thing here, right? We're talking about cuts. So whether or not they're maintenance cuts, so we just bring yield, real yields down a little bit, or whether or not, let's say hypothetically at the end, you know, 2024, 2025, that we start talking about recessions, and then there's what I call the bad cuts. The bad cuts are those cuts that. You know, if we go into a recession, maybe it's not 25 basis points. Maybe it's not three cuts of 25 basis points. Maybe now we're talking, talking about 50 basis points. The point is, like, money managers sitting here today, we don't really know. Now, I'm going to come back to one thing that you were talking about, and you're 100% right to talk about flows into fixed income now. And you're talking about that $6 trillion in money markets. Now, the thing you have to keep in mind, though, is what is the composition of that $6 trillion and how much of that potentially could actually come into the high-grade fixed income market? 
and it's not going to be $6 trillion. But you don't need $6 trillion to come in and move that 10-year from 410 down to three and a half in a very short period of time. And nobody in, I'm just going to include us, obviously, in this, and we think we're the experts here. You can't predict when that's going to happen. And so when we talk to clients, we say now is the time. You should be getting into fixed income, whether or not it's your high-quality fixed income or if you think it's going to be the soft landing and maybe you want to go for a little bit more yield. You know, that's going to be up to the individual investor. And that's the question like our listeners and advisors have been asking is, okay, I know the Fed's going to cut. I don't know when. I don't know how much. But I, I want to lock myself and my clients into – some more duration in case yields fall or just get a higher yield because if the short-term yields fall, maybe the longer-term ones don't go down that much. If the economy keeps humming along, maybe the 10-year stays at f- in the 4 to 5% range. Who knows? So probably a good transition into your, your new ETF that we're here for today, J-Bond. This is a, a I guess you call it a core plus strategy. No, this core. is core a straight, yeah, straight core. core strategy. This is investment grade uh, only. Okay. So plus you would know, be with high yield. Correct. Exactly. Right. Okay. So this is just investment grade. And one of, I guess a lot of investors probably aren't really familiar with like a, a bond index. People might invest in a bond index fund or an ag fund. Uh, but most people these days kind of know it's really hard to beat something like the S&P 500, right? But the bond market is, is different. So maybe you could just start there talking about how the, that aggregate bond market works and then how, how you try to tweak and go different from that. Right. So – out of the entire fixed income universe, high high grade, so invest uh, investment grade, uh, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Ag Index makes up about fifty percent. Maybe it's a little less than fifty percent of that entire investable universe of debt. Um, what J Bond is going to attempt to do is it's going to leverage uh, parts of that index that are underrepresented in the index. So as an example, uh, J-Bond, the way we've designed this, even though it's going to be benchmarked versus the ag, it's going to have a securitized, um, heavier uh, allocation. So let's say the ag is on agency mortgages, it's around 30%. Uh, securitized credit's going to be another 1.5%. J-Bond, the way we've designed this, the way that we're going to run this, is that the um, we have minimums or and maximums. So uh, it's going to be a minimum of securitized uh, plus twenty percent is how J bond is going to be. That's a minimum. So let's say that's fifty percent securitized at all times. J bond. We're actually going to run that between sixty to sixty five percent, and we'll talk about that in a minute and why we think that's a good idea. Uh, but then on the corporate credit side, where we still think we do a great job of corporate credit, um, what we've seen over time when you know the the product that we have on the 40X side, so the 40X mutual fund, uh, when we look at attribution over a long period of time, uh, our attribution, uh, our alpha producers come from the securitized sector. And that's why we've really decided to focus in on the securitized for this ETF. So for Ben's benefit, because not my, I know what you're talking about, but what, what does securitized credit mean? So securitized in general is going to be a combination of government guaranteed securities, uh, that's that 30%. Uh, and then it's going to be everything else, securitized credit. So whether or not it's uh, auto receivables, it could be credit card receivables, it could be related to commercial real estate, uh, it could be related to residential real estate. Uh, it's everything else that has some credit component to it uh, other than just the agency. So a lot of that securitized stuff is not in the ag is what you're saying. 
the ag makes up about one and a half percent of that entire universe. So let's say securitized in general is six trillion dollars. It's a fraction. Can we talk about the mortgage part of it? So the one of the reasons why interest rates on mortgages went up so much is obviously from the Fed's actions, but also from their inaction. So they removed themselves in a big way from buying. Even I think in March 2022, when they started raising rates, right before that, they were still buying whatever it was, $20 billion a month. I mean, they were they were they they had their hands all over the mortgage market and they stepped away while they were raising interest rates. So not only did interest rates go up, but the spread between mortgages and treasuries also blew out. Is that now more attractive? I mean, obviously it's obviously it's more attractive than it was three years ago, but just how much more attractive? What, what does that look like in terms of the portfolio? That is a very interesting question because when we look at the investment grade sectors, uh, it's basically going to be, you know, what we invest in, it's going to be treasuries, it's going to be corporate credit, it's going to be those agency mortgages, and then securitized credit. When we look at how the performance of corporate credit did in 2022, well, 2023, and then the beginning of this year, uh, it's it's rallied. It's done tremendous. And for a variety of different reasons, um, but it's it's been one of those sectors that has done extremely well. Agency mortgages, on the other hand, uh, they blew out to a spread. Uh, they rallied in a little bit in November and December, and that's because of the market um, all of a sudden thought that there were going to be seven to eight rate cuts in 2024. Whenever you have rate cuts and those rates were going to come down, it made uh, that that's a positive technical for mortgages overall. The problem with the mortgage market, though, is that when you take the Fed out of being one of the largest buyers in the market, and then the other thing that happened was last year was that because of the stress that we saw in the banking system in March of last year, um, banks are also no longer in the market buying agency mortgages. So they they make up about two-thirds of what is in the mortgage index. So there's not a natural buyer really left to drive mortgage spreads tighter. So money managers through the first half of 2023 uh, went overweight agency mortgages, somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10%. Uh, so then the only, net, the only big buyer that potentially could come in the market at this point in time to really tighten spreads in, barring something changing with banks, is the foreign buyers. And they're not showing up at this point either. So here it is that you have mortgage spreads that have widened out to a certain level, and they're staying there. And it's, and it's a huge spread. So I looking at it today, it's it's still six point nine percent for the thirty year today, and the ten years at ten. Not nice. Or at four, ten years at four. Sorry. And so it's almost a three percent spread. I, I looked at this historically. I think for the last twenty or thirty years, it's maybe one and a half, two at the most. It's, so three percent is a very high spread. So my hope is if the Fed does lower rates, that mortgage rates come down, which I think could could be a boon to the economy in terms of housing activity. What causes that spread to compress? Because that, so, that would be great so for so people who are wanting to buy a house, obviously. So one of the problems, so when you think about how mortgages are priced and how agency mortgages trade compared to treasuries, volatility in the treasury market is very important. And when we started this, you were talking about the significant volatility we saw last year. So when there's that much volatility, it when people think about pricing, what that option and when things are going to be called or you know, et cetera early, then the spread for mortgages 
widens out. So in the absence of natural buyers, the Fed, regional banks, banks buying, and with a high degree of treasury volatility, you've got much wider spreads either on agency mortgage securities or also in an actual mortgage if you go buy a mortgage compared to the 10-year rates. That's absolutely true. What happens? Exactly as you said, when you when you get confidence in the market that it's not, wait, are we higher for longer or is the Fed cutting? When you start to get confidence in that, then I think mortgage spreads come in. So just to add to this a little bit, it's a it's a little bit more complex of a story when you start talking about mortgages because there's this thing called the coupon stack. So basically there are mortgages that start, you know, that you can buy at two percent and go all the way to six and a half. Maybe you can find some seven percent mortgages out there. Because of different dynamics within low coupons versus the higher coupons or the current coupon, they react differently to rates in different environments for different reasons. There's a term that I'm going to throw out there that unless you're a bond person, you're not going to know it, but it's important when you talk about yeah, investing in two mortgages. Convexity. Uh-huh. Positive convex- convexity versus negative convexity. Positive convexity basically means that if rates rally, your bonds are going to rally with them. If rates sell off, your bonds are going to sell off Michael about the same amount. Michael called me about a month ago and asked me right? what convexity is. Because you know what? No, was, it, it was, was a big. It was a big. I remember it was a big portion of the CFA exam. That was a long time ago. Right. So when you have a when you have a portfolio of ne- negative convexity, your duration as rates move around, your duration is also going to move around, but in the opposite direction of what you want it to. When rates are, if rates are going down, your negative convexity is moving against you. When rates are going up, so think about this, like rates are going higher, you're measured to an index, rates go higher, all of a sudden your duration extends, right? But you're extending when you don't want it to extend because rates are going higher. You want a shortened duration. That's that negative convexity and it works the other way too. So as rates come down, if you own that negative convexity, your your bonds, are actually going to get shorter to the index when you want it to be long as rates are going down. That is really the key of how you manage mortgages. And that's why you really have to understand what you're buying between a low coupon mortgage or that current coupon mortgage or that high coupon mortgage. And that's why you want the experts right, to be Right, to your point, the, the people who, were, who wanted to stay in their 3% mortgages, like us, that made the duration of the mortgage bonds longer because they weren't exactly. going to get bought down as quick. They weren't going to get refinanced. Correct. Exactly. So dealing with all these different moving pieces, there are lots of different, so how do you how do you manage that? And what are you looking at to make changes to your portfolio? If you're going to go from one sector to another or one type of bond to another, how do you, what are you looking at to, to make changes there? And what are your parameters? So first and foremost, um, we want positive convexity, positive convexity versus the index. Now the index actually has a lot of positive convexity because it's made up mostly of low coupon mortgages. So twos, two and a halfs, and threes. But the problem with buying just those coupons uh, is that it's price, it's valuation. Because of banks, that's what banks own. That's what got them into trouble last year. Asset liability mismatch. They had longer durations as rates went higher, right? So it's that component. And then the Fed owns another large component. And so there's not a lot of float of that mortgage out there, which means that it didn't really have that opportunity to blow out and have an, uh, make it an attractive type type of investment for us, right? Conversely, when you talk about, or when a lot of people in the market talk about agency mortgages being attractive, they talk about that current coupon, and because it's a relatively widespread. Currently now, it's about 125 treasuries, which is relatively attractive, uh, historically, from a historical standpoint, 
but it's got that negative convexity component. And it's more negative convex now than what it's been in the past. Because when we think about where we're at in that rates, we talking about rates coming down next year, those bonds are going to shorten when you don't want them to shorten. And when they shorten, the spread widens. It does all the things that you don't want it to do. So when we talk about positive convexity, right, we want to find mortgages that have either a low coupon mortgage, that's going to be at $85 or a $90 price security that actually has components to it that does pay a little bit faster. So that not only uh, do we have some price carry, we actually get our money back in a shorter period of time. So $0.85 cents on the dollar getting paid back par. That is pure alpha to the portfolio if you can find those types of securities. Or if you can find something at a slight discount that has positive convexity that from a valuation standpoint, is relatively attractive. That's another thing that we're trying to do. But it really comes down to that positive convexity because when we talk about rates going lower this year, we do not want our portfolio to shorten. We actually want it to stay the same duration as that index duration is going to shorten. We've gone deep into the weeds on convexity and mortgage bonds in particular. I wonder, since a lot of your podcasts are more focused on equities, I wonder if we should take a step back and talk about the index and how we think more broadly. Sure. I'm glad you asked. I was going to go a slightly different direction, but we could, so maybe a segue into that. We didn't talk about corporate credit at all. That's where I was going. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So 2022 was a very unusual year where bonds got killed, not because credit quality was deteriorating. It was all duration. So junk bonds actually outperformed. And we never really saw in this tightening cycle, we never really saw corporate spreads do much of anything. I mean, there was a few wiggles, but spreads remained relatively tight to certainly to what you would have thought if you knew that there's going to be 500 basis points of tightening. So talk about how corporate credit has responded and where you think there might be opportunities. So we went from a period in March of 2020, when the market basically shut down, where corporate credit spreads blew out to the actual OAS number or spread was 374. And from there, spreads just went on a tightening cycle. And they happened for the next two years. So, um, 91 yesterday, right? What's that? I think it's 91 basis points yeah, yesterday. Yeah, 90, 91 basis points where we're sitting at right now. Now, for a couple of different reasons. So. We talked about flows earlier. Flows into fixed income, high-grade fixed income, is a very powerful force because two-thirds of that index is, is put into passive money. So of, that, you know, of, of the investments that go in there, two-thirds of that market go into passive money. I always say that passive money is the uneconomical buyer. They don't look at spreads. They don't look at value. They just come in, they buy the current coupon agency mortgage, they take the negative convexity, they buy corporate credit spreads where they're at. They don't try to distinguish where any value is, right? So, but it just comes in and it piles in the market and it artificially keeps spreads tight. And that's what happened in the first half of last year. And so we saw a little bit of widening in the third quarter of last year. And then the Fed indicated that, hey, the tightening cycle's over and the market starts pricing in all these rate cuts. And then ever since that, it's just been a straight move on IG corporate credit from 130 straight to where we're at right now, down to 91. And What's interesting this year versus last year, though, is last year, it was passive money flows into everything. This year, the flows have been targeted. And so far, it's been targeted into high-grade investment uh, uh, corporate credit. Interesting. I've heard that argument made a million times about how passive flows are keeping the S&P 500 and, and 
stocks are. I never heard on the bond side. So you're saying that obviously economic forces pulled spreads in because the economy is doing fine and spreads should. But but you're saying that this might be a new regime where uh, the steady state of corporate spreads just might be lower today than they were, say, well, 30 years ago before there was automatic money coming Michael, in every so two weeks. Every once in a while, we there will be a big move in rates. And Michael and Josh and I will get on our Slack and we'll say, what what just happened? Why did two-year go way up or go way down? And we, we go through the, you know, it's inflation or the economy. And then, and then our conclusion is always it's positioning. So that's kind of what you're saying, right? That positioning is. It is. The, t- the two years a little bit different, right? You know, so the front end of the curve trades on basically the, yeah, uh, the market's the perception of what's yeah. going to happen with the Fed, right? And then the back end of the curve is going to base- basically trade on what's going to happen to the overall economy growth is, you know, ultimately. So we're talking two different points of the curve and what happens there. But the flows into fixed income, when flows start to get targeted into markets like this, it really tightens uh, spreads for those specific markets, and not everything participates. So this year versus last year, we see a tightening of corporate credit. We have not seen that tightening in agency mortgages this year. Securitized credit, which we haven't even touched on, is going to be that sector that always lags that move in corporate credit, but it's going to happen, and they're going to have some catch up, and we're, we're getting those now. So. But Ben, I think it's also remember, important to remember what the actual yields are. So the debate really in the investment grade market has been about, and high yield as well, has been about yields versus spreads. So if you look at spreads in investment grade or high yield corporate credit, some would argue they're not compensating for the any risk of a recession, which st- still may happen. But on the other hand, you're looking at five, five and a half percent yields in high-quality, high-grade, investment-grade bonds, which are yields people haven't been able to capture for years. So that's really the debate in the market. Is it a yield buyer or is it a spread buyer? And the discipline that we have to have as active managers is looking holistically at what valuations are, as you said, the fundamentals. So Michael touched on that. Absolutely. Corporate credit has still been very resilient. Corporation Corporate managements have been very disciplined. Balance sheets are in good shape. It's the quantitative, which is valuations, which, as I said, attractive yields, but more nuanced on spreads. But nevertheless, spreads have come screaming in. You know, a year ago, IG spreads at 130 over and people thinking, well, you would really need to get 175 to get compensated for the risk of a recession. And they've gone straight into 90. Um, and, And so that's the balance. You can still pick up a really attractive yield, which you couldn't get in bonds for the last several years. So remind, remind listeners, uh, where where does so we understand how the S&P 500 works right apples or microsoft is the biggest company in in the in the world or in the united states and it's the biggest company in the S&P 500 how does the index for fixed income work yeah so microsoft gets there because of huge earnings and then a multiple put on there the way the benchmark for fixed income works is the biggest issuers of debt have the largest weighting So that's slightly perverse and not necessarily what you're looking for. So that's why we're big fans of active management and fixed income, because you've got a team of portfolio managers and research analysts thinking, as we said, about your duration, about your convexity, but also about sector selection, looking at relative value across IG, across mortgages, across securitized credit, and then also security selection within each of those so that we're buying the companies that we think will perform well, and you will, at the very 
very worst get paid back in full while collecting. Right, the idea is if the U.S. government issues a bunch of treasuries of a certain maturity, the, the ag picks that up based on exactly. what they're issuing. Exactly. They're not picking and choosing somehow. Exactly. And we are picking and choosing. And I think that really gets back to Rick's comments about how we think about particular bonds that we're buying for portfolios and the, and the duration and convexity profile of those. Perfect. So if our listeners and advisors want to learn more about J-Bond, where do they go? Uh, JPMorganFunds.com or talk to your advisor. Okay. This is great. Thanks. Okay. Thanks again to J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Thanks for New York Stock Exchange for hosting. Uh, remember, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Check out the J-Bond ETF to learn more. And email us, animalspirits at compoundnews.com. Investments in bonds and other debt securities will change in value based on changes in interest rates. If rates rise, the value of these investments generally drops. Investments in asset-backed, mortgage-related, and mortgage-backed securities are subject to certain risks, including prepayment and call risks, resulting in an unexpected capital loss and or a decrease in the amount of dividends and yield. During periods of difficult credit markets, significant changes in interest rates or deteriorating economic conditions, such securities may decline in value, face valuation difficulties, become more volatile, and or become illiquid. 